Well, we do have a kids class available at this time. Kids, if you haven't already done so, you're welcome to just get up at this time and make your way to the classroom at the back of the, the building here. And for those of you who may not be aware, uh, we do have a nursery available as well that just meets in the room just right off the corner of the building here uh, that's staffed. You're more than welcome to drop your kids off there uh, if you would like to make use of that. All right, well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you've been here with us over the last uh, several weeks, we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians together. We're partway through chapter 14, and we're going to skip ahead this morning to chapter 15. We'll come back in the weeks to come to chapter 14, but want to focus on the resurrection together this morning. Uh, In no uncertain terms, the Bible states that Jesus rose from the grave. I mean, the Bible just states it, that it happened. And Christians all over the world are celebrating that today. Uh, However, there are many who would argue against the resurrection. Perhaps you've heard various theories against it. Uh, For example, there is something called the swoon theory, uh, which would basically state, well, Jesus didn't actually die. Uh, Rather, he went into some kind of deep coma, and that explains it all. There's uh, the no burial theory that Jesus was never actually put into the the tomb. Uh, He would have been actually thrown into some mass burial site with a bunch of other criminals. Or there's another theory that could be referred to as the mass hallucination theory that everyone that claimed to see the risen Lord uh, was hallucinating out of an earnest desire to see Jesus again because they loved him. And then there's the stolen body theory that perhaps Jesus' disciples or somebody else like the gardener uh, stole his body, and that explains it all. My guess is that when I share those theories, most of you think, you know what, (laughs) those things are absolutely ridiculous. That's crazy. He's risen, we say. He's risen indeed. You can confidently assert the resurrection without grasping its implications for your life or for God's uh, big picture plan of salvation. People often miss the implications of the resurrection. We celebrate it. We go, oh yes, it's so wonderful. It's so great. But what does it mean? That's what the Corinthians had done. They had missed some of the implications of the resurrection. They believed that the resurrection, uh, they believed in the resurrection, but some of them were saying, as you'll see there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, they were saying there is no resurrection of the dead, though, for the believer. Jesus is alive, but after a believer dies, believers aren't going to rise bodily from the grave. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, Paul lays the groundwork to address this issue that the Corinthians are raising. And to do so, he just starts there in verse 1. If you look there, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Let's just start there, guys. Why don't we just start with what the gospel is and see where that takes us? And so let's do that with the Apostle Paul this morning and the Corinthians. I want to read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, 
then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The Apostle Paul in these verses is almost, uh, if you will, going to take us to three different windows and say, look through this window and look at the gospel. Now come over here to this one and look through this window at the gospel and then a third. And so this morning we want to look at three windows, look through three windows at the gospel. In the first window, Paul says, note the gospel's powerful progression. That is the first window through which we're going to look at the gospel this morning. It's powerful progression. Look at the way that the gospel progresses in people's lives, Paul says. We all do well to think about that. Why don't you just think about how the gospel has progressed in your life? And all this is uh, focused around the resurrection, what he's going to do here. If you are a Christian, here's the progression. You heard the gospel preached. Paul says in verse 1, he says, listen guys, I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. He's taking them and us back to the beginning of the gospel's powerful work in their lives. And it started with preaching. To preach is to herald or to proclaim something. Uh, in antiquity, if a king wanted to communicate a message, he couldn't simply uh, go to his little press conference room, hold his press conference, and then that message get broadcast all over the kingdom to his people. Rather, what he did is he dispatched heralds. And those heralds would go out from village to village, from hamlet to hamlet, from town to town, and they would stand up and proclaim the king's message. If you're a Christian... The king's message about Jesus was heralded to you by the apostles through the word of God. And perhaps you simply read it. Someone handed you a Bible and you were reading it and, and the, the, the apostles were preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Maybe you read it or, or perhaps you were in a church service like this or, or with a family member or something and someone said, here it is. Here's the king's message. Either way, the message was heralded to you. You heard the gospel, Paul says. You heard it preached. But it didn't stop there. It progressed. He says, and you received the gospel. He says in verse 1, I remind you of the gospel which you received. Uh, when it was preached to you, when it was proclaimed, you welcomed it. And you received it and you embraced it. And the verb indicates that, that that happened at a particular point in time. And some of you, you know exactly when that was. Others of you, you don't, you don't really know exactly when it was, but it happened. You heard the gospel and you believed, you received it. And now, uh, we might say, or as Paul says, that you stand in the gospel. Verse one continues, I remind you of the gospel in which you stand. And this is how the gospel progresses in people's lives. It's preached to them. They receive it and they find themselves standing in that gospel. You do not stand in your merit. You do not stand in your good works. You do not stand in your performance. You stand each day. We might even say each moment. You stand 
in the gospel. It's interesting. It doesn't say you stand on the gospel. You stand in it. Should doubts arise as to your salvation, you do not turn to that which is subjective. You don't turn inward and look at, at yourself and your performance and your good deeds for your assurance. You don't look at the great magnitude of your faith for your assurance. You turn to that which is objective, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you stand in that like a tree stands in the ground. This is how the gospel progresses in our lives. We hear it, we receive it, and we stand in it. For two to three days last week, or at least I think it was last week, the wind was just ripping. And the kids and I, we were up uh, on, on the second floor of our house looking out the back window, watching the, the wind just gusting. We've got a, a spruce tree just kind of right off the back of the house, a couple of them. And just watching those trees literally just whipped back and forth. You can hardly believe the movement at the top of those trees. Just being thrashed back and forth by the wind. And at one point I thought, man, I wonder if some of these trees are just going to snap right in the middle or two-thirds of the way up and fall. But they stood. Not because they were standing on the ground, but because they were rooted. They were standing in the ground. Rooted in the dirt. And the Christian as well, we might say, gets thrashed about by the winds of life. The Christian gets thrashed by his own sin and his own guilt. And by pain and by suffering and by the curse and by so many other things. And what is the Christian enabled to do because the gospel was preached to him and he received it? Well, the gospel progresses so that he stands in that gospel through the winds of life. We stand in the gospel as a tree stands in the ground. And also it's accurate to say that you are being saved by the gospel. Look at verse 2. In verse 1, I would would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And then verse 2, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached, unless you believed in vain. You received the gospel at a point in time, as we already spoke of. You are saved, we might say, if you put your trust in Christ, but we could also also say you are being saved. It's ongoing. God continues to bring about his saving work in you. It's progressive. Assuming that is, Paul says, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, you know, unless you believed in vain, Believers do hold fast to the gospel. And Paul's not doubting that or even questioning it, I don't think, in the Corinthians' lives. He's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, almost teeing things up for the rest of, of chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection. He's saying, if there's no bodily resurrection, guys, for the believer, then your faith is in vain. You do believe this message, right? That, that Jesus died, he was buried, and that he, he rose again? Uh, this last year, we planted sunflowers in our garden, and I really like watching uh, plants progress and grow. Uh, it's amazing. I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I just feel like an old person when I say that. I just like watching plants grow, you know. But it's true, and my kids like it too. So I think it's, it's a kind of a universal thing. But we put seeds in the ground uh, this last year, our sunflower seeds, and what happened is they germinated. And little bit by little bit, uh, those flowers began to spring up out of the ground. And it's just this small little plant at the beginning. And springs up out of the dirt. 
And, and these flowers, they begin to go and grow and they're just green, right? They just start to make their way off the ground and they're growing and growing and growing and the kids are up next to them. Wow, this thing's almost as tall as me. Next thing you know, it was as tall as them and then taller and taller and taller, taller than my wife, taller than me. Still hasn't blossomed. It must have got seven, eight feet up in the air and that flower opens up and you see the yellow and then all the seeds. You go, wow. That's amazing. As those flowers sprung forth from the dirt and grew towards the sun. When the gospel is preached and it is received and it takes root in the heart and the soul, it's like a seed that's placed into the ground and it germinates and and, and the roots begin to grow and the plant begins to go up. And slowly and steadily life springs forth from the, the dirt and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. That's what happens with the gospel. We hear it preached. We receive it by faith. Through the, and that's God's powerful work in us. And, and life is, is brought forth. And we stand in the gospel and we grow. And it's ongoing. And Paul's just said, look through this window at the gospel and note how it powerfully progresses in a person's life and your life. And what Paul is getting at with these people is, listen, that, that all comes back to the resurrection. The resurrection has always been and will always be part of, of, of the powerful progression of the gospel. If there is no resurrection, there is none of that. You were, uh, as we read elsewhere in scripture, you were made alive with Christ. The illustrations I, I just described, those are illustrations of life, not of dead things, but of living things. There simply is no gospel without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what exactly is the gospel that Paul heralded to the to, to the Corinthians? He said, you know what? I came to you. I preached this message. And look what it did in your life. Look how it progressed. What did he preach to them? What was this message that forever changed their life? And at this point, Paul invites us. We've just looked through this window at its powerful progression. Why don't you come over here? And let's look through another window and note the gospel's central tenets. That's window number two, the gospel's central tenets. Verse three begins, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And he's about to articulate for the Corinthians yet again the most important elements of the gospel. Let me remind you of the very heart of the gospel. It's heart. What are, or what is the bare bones gospel what are the central tenets of the good news and based on this text the gospel can be summarized in in four assertions and the first is that christ died look at verse three for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, we know elsewhere from scripture that he has always been. He wasn't uh, brought into existence. He has always been. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Jesus created the universe with a word. He's always been. And yet a point in time came where God sent him here to earth. And at that point, he took on flesh and blood. He, he was born of a woman. He was born as a baby. And coming here to earth, he died on the cross. He suffered, bled, and died. 
And verse 3 tells us two things about his death. First, it explains that he died for our sins. Christ died in our place to atone for our sins. We couldn't atone for our own sins. Christ had to do that in our place, and he had to do that on our behalf. Christ died for our sins. And second, verse 3 says that Christ died according to the Scriptures. And it highlights the fact that the death of Christ, it wasn't some kind of unplanned accident that just happened one day. The Old Testament Scriptures had been pointing to it all along. You just read the Old Testament, and, and it's pointing and pointing and pointing forward to the Messiah. God repeatedly told the Old Testament Jews, for example, that they needed to offer animal sacrifices to atone for their sins. Even though those sacrifices could never truly atone for their sins, those sacrifices were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that would one day come. And as the Old Testament people did that, uh, Jesus said uh, some of those animals were to be lambs. Lambs we read without blemish and without spot. Perfect, spotless lambs. And Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 53 said that the Messiah was like a sacrificial lamb that is led to the slaughter. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would would be a sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins. And he, he said things like this in Isaiah 53 of the Messiah, that he was pierced for our transgressions. Okay, that, that's just what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he died for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, verse 5. That same verse, he was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, verse 6. He was stricken for the transgression of my people, Isaiah said in verse 8. He shall bear their iniquities, verse 11. He bore the sin of many, verse 12. The the Old Testament scriptures just pointed and pointed to the sacrificial death of the Messiah to atone for our sins. Central to the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And the second tenet of the gospel according to verse 4 is that Christ was buried. We maybe don't think a whole lot about that, but the simple fact that he was buried verified his death. He was taken down from the cross and he was buried in a tomb where he remained. And the third central tenet of the gospel is that Christ was raised. And of course, that's why we're here this morning. Look at verse 4. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus rose from the grave and he is alive today and he's forever alive. The text declares uh, a couple facts about Christ's resurrection as well. First, it says of his resurrection that he was raised on the third day. He was placed in the tomb on Friday, the day that he died, and he rose triumphantly Sunday morning. And while that caught everybody off guard at that particular point when he rose triumphantly from the grave, Jesus had predicted that very thing. He said it would be like the temple, tear it down and in three days I'll raise it up. But long before Jesus ever said anything about his resurrection, the Old Testament scriptures spoke of it. Verse 4 says he was raised according to the scriptures. I mentioned Isaiah chapter 53 that spoke of Messiah dying as a sacrificial lamb 
uh, for the iniquities of us all. But that very same passage, and it's almost a little bit more subtle. You might not catch it at first. It just sort of mentions uh, life after death. It describes activity after death in the life of the Messiah that Christ was raised. And the final central tenet of the gospel mentioned here is that Christ appeared. Verse 5 begins, and that he appeared. The bodily um, appearances of Jesus verified his resurrection. And this passage doesn't even mention all of those accounts. You, You read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you realize, whoa, he just keeps appearing to one person after another, male and female, large groups, small groups. I mean, you have so many of these appearances. After Christ rose, he appeared, we, we read in verse 5, to Peter and the twelve. Look at verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Peter and the other apostles saw Jesus face to face after he rose. And on one occasion, he appeared to 500 people. Look at verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 500 people who saw Jesus at the same time. Uh, Most of them, Paul says, they're still alive. I mean, if the Corinthians wanted to, they they could have uh, gone off there to Jerusalem or wherever else, and they could have sat down with hundreds of people who could have said, yes, I saw it with my own eyes. You might think I'm crazy, But I saw it, and so did 500 of the rest of us. And they literally would have all said the same thing. I saw him. He's alive. But there's more. Verse 7, he appears to James and all the apostles. That's an interesting reference. Look at verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Who was James? Well, James was the half-brother of Jesus, and you may recall that he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah nor did his family. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world. John chapter 7, verse 5 makes very clear that Jesus' brothers didn't believe. That is, until the resurrection. And this text says he appeared to James. And when you see James in the book of Acts, he's with with the rest of the believers. And from that point on, he believed and his life was forever changed. And next, verse 8, we read that he appeared to Paul. Last of all, it says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse 22 records that uh, the other apostles, you might think of of the, the 12 apostles, they were with Jesus from his baptism all the way through his ascension. Paul was the exception to that. He says, not me. I was untimely born. The risen Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus after Christ had ascended into heaven. And Paul says it was at that point that I was born. I've always been somewhat intrigued by A-frame houses. I don't know that I would ever want to live in them. one of them. It just seems like you kind of lose some space with that shape. But they are fascinating because you basically have two large walls and they've come together to meet at the peak. And they're dependent on one another. And that's how the gospel is that that Paul has just been uh, describing and he's been expressing its central tenets. Uh, We just looked at four central tenets, but if you look at them carefully, there's really two central tenets uh, that are primary. And those are his death 
and His resurrection. The first and third of the four tenets. And it's actually the second and fourth that verify the first and third. The burial and appearances verify those two primary tenets, the death and resurrection, depend on one another. And I think what happens oftentimes as we stand forth and we herald the gospel, of course we preach the cross. That Christ died to atone for our sins and satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. But that's only one side of the gospel. That's his, his death, that he died for our sins. But there's another side in it all, and they, they depend upon one another, and that's his resurrection. As Paul says, note the gospel's central tenets. Look through this window. The resurrection is part of, part of it. The resurrection has always been and will always be one of those central tenets. There is no gospel without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, uh, we will eventually, here in a moment, get to some of the sig- more of the significance of that. But before we do, uh, Paul takes us to a third window. He says, there, there's one more window that I want you to look at the gospel through. Note the gospel's fixed nature. The message that I preached to you, the death, burial, resurrection, and appearances of Jesus Christ that is settled and it is fixed and it's unchanging. Verses 9 to 11 I'll read them here in a moment. They might seem like Paul's going to go down a bit of a rabbit trail defending his apostleship. It was under attack, and so Paul is defending it in this book. But everything that he's going to say in verses 9 to 11 are driving towards what he's going to say in verse 11. He's going to make the point that this message, it's not about the apostle who preached it. It's not about the messenger. Whether it was myself or or whether it was one of the other apostles, whoever it was, don't you realize that we've all been testifying and bearing witness to the exact same message? We are witnesses of the resurrected Christ. We are witnesses to the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that He's alive. We saw Him with our eyes. And it doesn't matter whether it's Peter or Paul or John. It's the same message. They were witnesses of the resurrection. And uh, in verse 11, Paul says, So we preach. That's the message we preached. That's the message we preached to you. That's the message that we preach everywhere. So we preached and so you believed. The message of the gospel is static, we might say, and it's unchanging. It's once for all, forever the same. And every true gospel messenger proclaims the same message. What Peter preached, Paul preached. And what James proclaimed, John heralded. There is but one gospel, whoever it may be who preaches it. All the apostles preached the exact same message. They bore witness to the same thing. They bore witness to the resurrection. We saw him with our eyes. He's alive. He died for our sins and he's risen from the grave. And some of those apostles may seem greater than others, Paul says. For example, in verse 9, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles, of all those bearing witness to the resurrection, and and of all those who have seen him alive firsthand, I am personally the least. He's implying that perhaps some of the other apostles, like Peter and John, were greater, at least on the surface of things. And on the flip side, some of these apostles may seem lesser than others. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. 
This just died. We need to go here. Thank you. Um, verse 9. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul murdered Christians. He, he literally killed the people of God. And he, did, he, he recognizes of all the people on the face of the earth, I'm the last person that deserves to testify of the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. But God in his grace made him exactly that. He says, an apostle. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am an apostle. And that same grace of Jesus empowered Paul to testify to the risen Christ in a way that we might say was unparalleled by the other apostles. And I think these verses show that Paul was really stuck on two things. He was stuck on his own unworthiness. I am so unworthy of the gospel and I am unworthy to testify to it. And he was also stuck on the fact of the great privilege to be an apostle, the great privilege to share this message, testifying that Jesus Christ is alive. And all of this revealed the grace of God in his life. God has been good to me. And that grace resulted in the message of, of God's grace coming to the Corinthians. And them hearing it preached and receiving it and being able to stand in it and grow in it and progress in it. All of that was God's grace. But as I said, all that Paul has been saying there in verses 9 and 10, it's just pointing to verse 11, where Paul says, guys, listen. Whether then it was I or they, one of the other apostles, so we preach. This is the message. It's the exact same message. That Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ was raised, and that Christ appeared. And so this, thus we preach. And so this, thus you believed. All the apostles preached the exact same message and all Christians believe the exact same message. And we call it the gospel. Why is it shared here in 1 Corinthians 15? Because our bodily resurrection after death rests on Christ's bodily resurrection. That's where he's going to go in the rest of the chapter. And one day all those who believe in the resurrected Christ will too be raised bodily to live forever in the presence of their living Savior. And so Paul says, note the gospel's fixed nature. The resurrection has always been and will always be part of the gospel. It never changes. The message never changes as the decades and centuries and millennia roll by, it's the exact same message. There is no gospel without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to just maybe get you to think about a few things here as, as we focused on the resurrection. Is the gospel that you've been told the same gospel, the same message that the apostles heralded? They heralded a message that said that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he's been seen. It's a really simple message. He died for our sins on our behalf. To pay for those, to atone for those sins, 
and he rose again. There are a lot of quote-unquote good news messages about how to be saved. But this text just said that there's one message and it's forever fixed. It does not change. And you may have heard some other message about from some other apostle, from some other messenger of quote-unquote good news on how to have eternal life and life after the grave, on how to be right with God and have your sins forgiven. There's one message. And if the message you heard is not that message, it's not the gospel, period. Jesus Christ died for your sins. You can't atone for them. You can't save yourself. You can't earn God's favor. You're a sinner who deserves the wrath of God, and Jesus took that wrath for you. And he died and he rose again. There's only one gospel. It's never changed. And maybe this is the first time you've heard it, or maybe you're realizing, you know, what I have, what I have heard, it doesn't line up with what the Bible says. Well, what I just described about eternal life and bodily resurrection from the grave and hope beyond this life, God wants you to have that. That's what, that's literally why he died. So that you could have that hope. A living hope that's just as alive as Jesus is alive today. And if this is the first time you've heard this message or it's dawning on you, oh, I think I get it. Jesus died for me and he rose so that I could have eternal life. Well, what God wants you to do is is cry out to him and say, Jesus, I believe. I see it and I believe. Forgive me of my sins. I I trust you that what you did on the cross was enough to atone. I believe and I trust. Save me. Grant me this eternal life. Uh, many of you, you've, you've done that. And that's why you're here and you're so joyful and happy to be here this morning. And I would remind you of this as you share the gospel. Remember that the power is not in the messenger, but in the message itself. Paul's like, come on, guys. Why do you even care about the messenger? It doesn't matter. I am the least of all the apostles. Sure, Peter, John, they're greater than me. But we preach the same message. I just came to you and says, here it is. I preached you a message that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose, that he's alive, and you believed. Paul's not focusing on the messenger. He's not talking about the oratory skill of the speaker. He says it's the message. We're all just sharing it. We're all just testifying to it, and we shared it, and you believed. And I think as we think about what God has called us to as his people, he says, you you go bear witnesses to the resurrection. I've made you my witnesses. Go and share this good news with people. That's all we do. We just go and we testify. And the power is is not in that person. It's in the message and the power of the gospel itself. Romans chapter 1 says it is the power of God, not you, not your ability to share it really, really well and articulate it perfectly, just just everything just right. No, this message itself is power. And that ought to encourage us that as we go with this message, I I just want to testify that Jesus is alive, that he died for, for the sins of the world and that he's risen from the grave We just share the message. It's forever fixed and it is powerful. Also, our life in Christ allows us to live a new life and leave the old one behind. And that's what we saw looking through that first window. Look at how the gospel progresses. People hear it proclaimed and they receive it. 
And then they're standing in it and they're, 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 they're growing in it. They're, they're being saved by it. Our life in Christ, our, our, our new life in Christ, he says that we are new creatures. We've been made alive in him. Our life in Christ allows us to live a new life and to leave the old one behind. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. The resurrection means that you're no longer a slave to your sin and that you can fight it. And by God's grace, you can live in victory over it. Just as Christ triumphed over the grave, now you're in a position to triumph over your sin by the grace of God. And also, I think it's worth mentioning in line with what Paul is going to get to in the rest of this chapter, that in the face of death, we have a living hope beyond the grave. In verse 12, they were saying, uh, some of them were saying, there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul's like, are you crazy? Let's start with the gospel. Let's just go there. Look at Jesus and his resurrection. And what he's going to unfold and explain is if Jesus Christ is alive bodily, then that is the Christian's great hope too. You're going to die. But that is, that is not some terrible, horrible thing to be feared. In fact, all throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he, he starts talking about death as sleep. Not, and eventually he's going to say, oh, death, where's your sting? You know, oh, grave, where's your victory? The Christian doesn't fear death because the Christian has a hope beyond the grave. An eternal life in the presence of Jesus Christ. And some of you are sitting here and you are feeling the, the full weight of, of, the curse and, and death. And maybe that's in your life physically. Your, your body is physically falling apart and it's hurting and it's painful. And from the day that you were born, you began to die. And you're feeling that. And you're groaning under the weight of the curse. And, and yet Paul would point us to the fact that, that, that death that doesn't have the last word for the believer that our hope goes so, so far beyond the grave. And uh, some of you have watched friends and loved ones. Uh, they've already died. As Paul would say, they've fallen asleep. But the gospel says there's, some, there, there's this hope of this great reunion that we will rise bodily too and we will also be resurrected and be given a new body to be forever with our risen Lord. The entire gospel depends upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes at this time? I want to give you the next few moments there in your seat to respond to God's word that was just preached. And I want to say, first of all, to those of you, and maybe you're, for the first time you feel like your eyes have been opened to the gospel, and you realize that Jesus died and he rose for you to pay the price for your sins and give you life. And I would just encourage you there in the quietness of your seat to cry out to God and say, God, I believe. Will you save me? I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Will you forgive me? And give me this new life based on your death, burial, and resurrection. And others of you, you've done that. Uh, respond however God leads you, whether that be praise or uh, hope, uh, whatever the case may be. You speak to the Lord at this time, and I will conclude us in prayer momentarily.